The reading can be found on your pew slips, and it's taken from Judges chapter 2, verses 6 to 19. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger, because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashereths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders, who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these radiators. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshipping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Thank you very much, Chris. And we have our sermon talk uh, slightly earlier in the service today, um, so more time later in the service, I suppose, to respond to it. Let's pray as we have a start to look at this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Judges, which we're starting to have a look at in our evening services this term. We pray that you would open them up for us. Shed your light through this word into our hearts. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. So yes, as I say, a new series, uh, Judges, a book many of us will be a little bit less familiar with. Uh, Many familiar characters in it, which we'll be hearing about, like Samson and uh, Gideon, but also less familiar characters like um, Ehud and Deborah and Jephthah. 
judges were temporary rulers rather than permanent rulers like kings who were raised up for a season to lead God's people. And God was teaching Israel at the time through the leadership of these judges and continued to teach his people uh, right up until the present day through the record of what these judges did and how they led Israel. So there's going to be plenty for us to glean and uh, enjoy from this account, these accounts of these leaders so many hundreds of years ago. As we come to the point in the Bible of judges in the narrative, of course, Israel has partially conquered the land of Israel under Joshua, and they're, I'm sure, very conscious at that time of the promises to Abraham that have been directing them uh, for many years since then of God's people under God's blessing in God's land. Well, they're certainly enjoying about half of those promises by this stage in their collective life as a nation. They were a people, after all, which had grown uh, under the pharaohs in Egypt and had escaped uh, under Moses and then had been led into at least half of the lands that they'd been promised, which was now partially conquered under Joshua. Um, but what about the rest of the lands? What about the fullness of God's blessing? How would they go forward from this point uh, to fulfill and to enjoy the fulfillment of all of the promises God had made through Abraham? Well, that's a, a part of the, the question behind this book, which we'll be looking at. And of course, faithfulness was the key. And we'll see the ups and downs of faithfulness in the nation of Israel. There was a great commitment at the end of Joshua uh, when Joshua made the people commit themselves to faithfulness to the Lord. He knew that he was going, his time was up, uh, he was about to be taken away and would die, and he was keen for the nation to continue in the ways in which he had led them. And so they committed themselves to faithfulness to the Lord as they continued to uh, serve him. But of course, it was an ominous promise, because uh, it recalls previous promises uh, earlier in the narrative, like in Exodus 24, when Moses uh, asks the people to make a similar promise, a similar commitment. And of course, only six weeks later, there they were worshipping a golden calf. So we end the book of Joshua, begin the book of Judges with a slight hint of trepidation. Yes, a great promise has been made that the people will be faithful to the Lord their God. But really, will they? Will it be different this time to how it has been before? And sadly, History does repeat itself as we read on into this book of Judges, as we see uh, great falls as well as great commitments. And the whole of Judges, in many ways, is a series of cycle of these falls and commitments. And we see that summarized very neatly in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, at the end of our reading from tonight. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived, for the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. A series of cycles of falls and repentances. And there are four steps, four main steps that we see uh, summarized in this passage to that cycle, and which we'll see on a grand scale over and over again as the book continues, and indeed as the whole life of the Israelite nation continues in the Bible. Firstly, God's good provision. Secondly, the people forgetting God. 
Thirdly, God's angered judgment. And thirdly, the people crying out. I'll just uh, take us through those four steps in the summary form we have in this passage at the beginning of the book of Judges. And no doubt we'll see them cropping up again later in the series. So firstly, God provides good leaders. God's good provision in the form of leaders for his people. He had provided earlier in the life of Israel in the form of Moses and Aaron to lead them through the wilderness. And then he provided Joshua and Caleb, leading them into the promised land. And now he provides judges, those who are raised up temporarily. Uh, We see the earlier provision in verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. And then later on, we'll see the provision of the judges, as we saw in that verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. God showed his mercy in this way. The people didn't deserve these wonderful leaders who were faithful and who did everything they were meant to and who led the people back into ways of faithfulness. But yet God graciously provided them again and again, despite the way in which they were often treated by the people. All of these leaders, in some small way, were prefiguring the great leader that God would eventually provide us in the form of the Lord Jesus, the ultimate good leader who leads his people in ways of faithfulness, and who indeed still is the head of his people today, um, even though he's not with us in bodily form anymore. Who is the head of the church? Well, it's not the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's not even the Queen who is merely supreme governor. The head of the church is Jesus Christ, and he still leads his people by his spirit today. Even though we did nothing to deserve such a leader, God shows his mercy in providing. Good leaders aren't just good in themselves. They also exert an influence. They lead the people in ways of faithfulness. Uh, Hence, it says in that verse 7, while Joshua lived and the elders lived who had seen the great works the Lord had done, the people served the Lord. They followed the leader in their example and teaching. The influence of good leaders is huge. It has ripple effects throughout societies, throughout groups. And the influence, certainly, of the Lord Jesus himself is the ultimate good ripple influence that we have. But unfortunately, step two happens The people forget God, and that certainly happens here in Judges. Have a look at verse 10 again. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods. How quickly... The Israelites turned when they were in the lands. They'd been brought out of Egypt by great signs and wonders. uh, But sadly, that generation who had seen that had died away. And this had been forgotten about. And they'd been led into the land uh, to conquer the land they'd been promised. And yet, even though that had been shown to them, they forgot about the goodness of God and simply turned to the gods of the people who lived there. The Baals, that is the chief god of the Canaanites, and the Ashtoreths, that's the kind of chief female deity of the Canaanites. They abandoned the Lord and didn't just abandon him, but went to, went after other gods and didn't just go after those other gods, but they bowed down and worshipped those other gods. 
hence the evil that they did. The human heart is extremely fickle and changeable. Amazingly, how it can change in one instant from going the right way to going completely the wrong way, from sitting on the lap of uh, Father, hearing about the uh, wonderful deeds that have been done by the Lord, bringing the people out of Egypt one moment to the next moment, going after the Baals and the Ashtoreths of the Canaanites. One phrase that we often uh, have here at All Saints uh, from the pulpits is that God has no grandchildren. That is, you have to be a direct child of God yourself, have a direct relationship with him yourself in order to have any part with him. One can't simply rely on the relationship that one's parents have with God himself. And that was certainly true of the Israelites. Uh, They couldn't get away with being grandchildren of the Lord their God. It wasn't good enough that the elders who had seen the wonders in Egypt were their parents, their grandparents. They couldn't simply rely on their faithfulness and their following of the Lord for their own spiritual lives. They had to repent and have a relationship with God themselves, which they rejected in favour of Baal and Ashtoreth, sadly. Let's learn from that example and not do the same ourselves, not simply rely on the faith of those who came before us, but go forward and strive ourselves in our own spiritual walk with the Lord. Great warning to us not to do a spiritual 180, as it were, and go one moment from the right direction to completely the wrong direction, because it's actually so easy to do that. It's not the sort of temptation of following Baal and Ashtoreth and setting up little figurines in our houses of those Canaanite deities, which is our temptation. We live in a much more materialistic age, an age when it's materialistic deities that are much more likely to cause us to do that spiritual 180. Things like striving after the perfect family or perfect health or the perfect household or the perfect garden or the perfect holiday or the perfect lifestyle or the perfect partner. How easy it is for those sorts of things to draw us away from serving the Lord with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul and all our strength. Instead, to only give half our mind and half our soul to the Lord and to give the other half to some of those materialistic desires. And how quickly that half that's still with the Lord itself can seep away once the other half's gone. The truth is we can't serve God and money. Either we'll hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. And yet despising the Lord, hating the Lord, is sadly the direction that Israel did go in. And so we come to step three in the cycle that we see again and again in the book of Judges. God becoming angry at the people's behavior. Turn again to verse 12. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel... The Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And then likewise, we have slightly after the uh, section that's been taken in our uh, pages here, verse 20. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenants I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, 
I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. Sometimes we hear the phrase, the impassibility of God, that God is without uh, parts or passions. Uh, You might read a a section like uh, this from uh, Judges and think, well, no, that can't be right. God must have passions because we clearly see here God being aroused with anger at his people's behavior. Uh, Some would say that who want to strongly defend the idea that God is impassable, that God doesn't have passions, that this uh, reference here in Judges is simply what's called an anthropophaticism. That is uh, a human way of understanding how God reacts to things. I wouldn't take quite such a strong uh, position on the impassibility of God, though I think I would agree that he can't be forced in his passions, that nothing comes as a surprise to him. But this definitely is a genuine emotion that he feels. He really was angry, and he really is still angry when people actually don't do uh, as he asks, when they don't worship him, when they turn away entirely to other gods. A genuine, passion, passionate, emotional, emotional response. Now, however we read God's anger uh, in this passage, it's entirely justified, isn't it? Uh, given all he's done for Israel, all he's provided for them, the place he's brought them to, and yet still they turn away from him and do the exact opposite of what he asks, worship the exact opposite of who they should worship. And God's anger is expressed, and it's expressed in a slightly passive form. It's a form of giving over. Imagine if uh, little Jimmy hasn't tidied his room like he's been told to. The reaction of God here is not telling little Jimmy, go and tidy your room up right now. Nor is it, little Jimmy, go and stand in the naughty corner for four hours. Nor is it, little Jimmy, your pocket money is being taken away. It's more of a passive response of, well, little Jimmy, you haven't done what I've told you to do, so you can go and enjoy the consequences of not tidying your room. Uh, Yes, you will end up stepping on those toys you've left strewn over the floor. And frankly, it's your own fault because you haven't tidied them away. It's a sort of step-back anger that God is showing. He's giving them over to the enemies whose gods they are worshipping. Go on, then. See where that takes you. You want to worship a god of mayhem? Enjoy the mayhem that arises in your own society. You want to worship a god of anger and bloodshed? Enjoy the anger and bloodshed that will ferment in your society. You want to worship the gods of the Canaanites? Well, go and enjoy annexation by Canaan and absorption into Canaan. It's not just an Old Testament reaction there, that giving over, because it's exactly the same reaction we read about in the first chapter of Romans, which sets out the gospel in such great detail for us. When human beings turn the universe upside down, worshipping created things rather than the creator himself, God says, go on then, enjoy a morality, and a society that's completely turned upside down. See where that gets you. A world in which there is no right and wrong anymore because you've turned your back on it. That's the sort of angered response of God. And it shouldn't be a surprise for us to see that sort of consequence in our own society when so many have turned the universe upside down and started worshipping those materialistic idols which are so much around us when so few honour 
the creator himself. And of course, that leads to the final step, the fourth step in our cycle that we find in Judges and indeed throughout Scripture, that the people cry out in distress, in repentance. At the end of verse 15, they were in great distress. And then again in verse 18, the Lord uh, was relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. In many ways, we here in the West, uh, among the people of God, are at stage four, aren't we? There's so much in the church, in the Western world, that exhibits the signs of stage four of the cycle, uh, that we're in great distress and crying out to the Lord. Uh, Church buildings turned into bars and nightclubs in all sorts of directions. Even here in this village, a church turned into simply a, a residence. Pulpits, which are full of politics and New Age mysticism, rather than full of the gospel. And congregations that have simply evaporated entirely and are more plugged into mindless entertainment than into worshipping the creator. And so we cry out. And the cycle repeats as God hears those cries of mercy and relents and shows mercy by offering up and providing new leaders. Many people uh, outside the church as well as inside it have seen cyclical patterns, uh, repeated patterns to human behavior. Thomas Cole, the Anglo-American painter in 1833, created a very famous series of five paintings called The Course of Empire, which start with the savage state of civilization, the kind of bleak wilderness, nothing much going on, followed by a pastoral state, a few farmers on the landscape uh, tilling the fields, followed by the consummation of empire in the central painting of the series, uh, great classical buildings and trade going on in every direction, followed by destruction when the barbarians invade the empire and pull it down, and finally desolation when all is laid waste Night has fallen, and uh, there is no life left in the great city that once was. He painted that in 1833 as a parable for the new American nation, which he was worried was going in that direction uh, under its then president, that it was heading in the same direction as Greece and Rome and would one day fall under the weight of its own decadence. Maybe there is indeed a lesson today uh, for Western civilization there. But what's the key to the rise and fall there? What was it that powered that rise and that fall? He left it a bit of an open question, uh, as painters are free to do. Was it morality that uh, was good to start with and then went away? Patriotism, love of states that drove the growth of the nation and its fall as the love dissipated? Or religion in whatever form? Well, George Santayana provided a different answer. He was the uh, academic from Italy who worked at Harvard for a while. And he very famously said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, which Churchill then uh, took as his own quotation, changed it slightly. Those who cannot uh, refuse to read history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. Uh, Is the past, is history the key to avoiding this cycle, to getting out of the cycle? Oh, As much as I love history myself, I'm going to have to dissent from Santana and Churchill here. Because as good as it sounds, the idea that reading history is the key to getting out of this cycle of ups and downs, 
The truth is, even those who do read history, who do remember the past, still end up repeating the mistakes. It's not the golden key to getting out of the trouble of humanity. It might sound better than just saying education, 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 or better health care, or stronger law enforcement, but actually it's just as powerless as those political remedies to get us out of these cycles. The Book of Judges offers a different explanation. It shows that the key, actually, is faithfulness, certainly for the church and probably for wider society as well, that the key is faithfulness to those cycles of rise and fall. When the people were faithful, they enjoyed success against their enemies and they thrived and prospered. And when the people turned their backs on God, they fell under the swords of their enemies and were destroyed. But more than that, they were doomed to the latter, to fail, to unfaithfulness, without a godly leader to lead them in that faithfulness. Yes, faithfulness is the key, but how do we achieve faithfulness? How do we keep faithfulness with a faithful leader? It's only when a faithful judge was appointed, when that was provided, that the cycle resets and the people would succeed. In this way, judges remind us of our reliance on the Lord to provide godly leaders for us. But it also, of course, affirms our own responsibility to follow and to be faithful to the instructions and to the directions of such a leader. There's a dynamic interplay there between God's sovereignty and our responsibility, uh, notwithstanding the fact we do fail without God's help in providing a good leader. And as I said earlier, the good news for us as Christians reading the book of Judges now is that we do have such a leader, not merely a temporary leader, a judge who's raised up for a time, or a temp- even a temporary king who might be part of a permanent line but will eventually himself die and be succeeded by his son or grandson, but instead a king who reigns forever, a faithful leader who won't go away. Of course, the Lord Jesus. We will always have him setting us a good example, uh, causing that good ripple effect amongst those who follow him. The American Franciscan Richard Raw um, has uh, a lot to say, some of, lots of which I don't entirely agree with, but he has some very pithy statements. And one of his wonderfully pithy statements uh, is the idea of the cycle of man, movement, machine, monument, memory, which is a sort of slightly a Christian version, really, of that uh, coal series of paintings of the course of empire uh, that... There's this cycle of starting off with a man, the great leader, the great figure, who starts a movement, a Jesus movement in a particular place. Uh, But that movement turns into a bit of a machine, that it starts becoming institutional rather than personal. And once it has become a machine, it's doomed to become just a monument, something that has no energy or fire to it anymore. And once at that stage, it's very close to becoming simply a memory, something forgotten. And certainly, I'm sure many of us can think of uh, institutional Christian uh, organizations that were once movements that started out as movements uh, led by great men of the past, but they've declined and gone into reverse and have become memories. That's true of parts of the church. There's certainly individual congregations and individual movements within the church that can go that way. 
But the good news is that the church as a whole, the church taken globally, is not going to go that way because it is led by the Lord Jesus who will not be taken away from us as a good leader. There will always be, even if there is decay in parts of the church where unfaithfulness has set in, renewal movements also within the church because Jesus is leading his movements globally. Having had a little overview of the book of Judges in these opening verses in chapter 2, we might be thinking, oh, we don't need the rest of it now. We've got the pressy. Uh, we have an idea of uh, where all of these particular individual judges are going to go. Uh, why would we bother coming back to the rest of the series? Well, God himself decided that we needed the whole book of Judges rather than just chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we need to hear the example and the teaching of uh, 12 of these judges. And so it's definitely worth us uh, bearing that repetition in mind and entertaining it amongst ourselves so that we can also learn those lessons. And doubtless there'll be plenty uh, for us to glean about leadership and faithfulness as we do that. In the meantime, let's pray and give thanks for the leadership of the Lord Jesus and commit ourselves afresh to him. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for that gracious provision that you have made to us. Thank you for your son, given as the perfect king, reigning forever. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the way we can learn from the experiences of your people in the past. And we pray as we do so, we'd be guarded against their mistakes, that we'd learn from both their faithfulness and their unfaithfulness, to walk closely with you, the Lord our God. For Jesus' sake. Amen.